Guys, if you can find your way back to your seats. You know, normally Peter handles the uh, grandparenting dimensions of the life of the church, but I was just threatened by a grandparent. You know, when you just become a grandparent, still a lot of work to do in your life, you know? So just for the sake of threatening grandparents, I hope no one else gets any ideas from this, but we do want to announce that Ethan James Bassel was born and Honey Boo Boo is here. Uh, The grandmother is Honey and the grandfather is named Boo Boo. So (laughs) Honey Boo Boo. Congratulations. Yeah, it is. I know. I know. Well, open up to Matthew chapter 21. And let's read. Today, as Evan said moments ago, today is Palm Sunday. So we are going to visit Jerusalem this morning on Palm Sunday. Let's read together Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of the beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them on, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Lord, thank you for not just a timeline, calendar, title that says Palm Sunday. Lord, thank you for recording this event well, there's so much for us to glean this morning from this encounter. This day, from your perspective, oh Lord, this is the final moments, the home stretch of your great desire to love and care for your people and to proclaim your great glory upon this earth. So, Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. This is, a, this is still a living scene being played out in our lives today, and we need to see it. So help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I titled this morning's message, Palm Sunday, 
the king on a donkey in the Sears catalog. So just in case some of y'all are wanting to leave, don't, don't leave just yet. You're going to want to hear about the Sears catalog at least. All right, here's my two questions for us this morning from this passage. One, uh, do God's purposes fit in man's preferences? God's purposes fit into man's preferences. And then secondly, are you disappointed with a king on a donkey? All right, well, let's look first at do God's purposes fit into man's preferences, right? We've got this great scene. This is a scene of Jesus entering into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, somewhere about a This is the east side of Jerusalem. Somewhere a mile or two out, Jesus mounts the donkey and begins his procession into Jerusalem. And crowds are gathering. There's an uproar. There's crying out. There is, it's a parade. I mean, it's a giant event. And a city that is filled with people have come out to shout their praise and to shout hosannas and to celebrate something that's going on there. But it's interesting as you get to know the people in Jerusalem here today a little bit, their, their life is not something to shout about. Their life is not a rejoicing setting. Things are not good in Jerusalem. Things are not going well in the lives of these people. And into their life comes riding the king on a donkey. Jesus is coming into their life. And I, I want us to be, be get captured by something as we consider this story. Jesus is is making a loud entrance. Now, we know historically this is a huge entrance into Jerusalem. This this is home stretch for the biggest event in human history, the cross and the resurrection. But as we get to know these people, we're going to find out that they're not getting it. They don't quite get. Their hosannas sound like they belong in a church meeting, but they don't. Their their shouts of hosanna aren't going to make it one whole week. But they were very excited to have Jesus come into their town. The word hosanna actually means save us, help us. So when Jesus comes riding in, they're recognizing we are in great need. And we are so glad you are here. Save us. Help us, O son of David. And he was there to save them. And he was there to help them. But they really aren't going to get it very clearly. I think I wrote this out in your outline. Like most of life's settings, right? And Jerusalem here is a setting. It's a scene of life. There's something already at work when God steps into that location. And that setting tends to color how we understand and interpret what God is doing. Right Before Jesus shows up with his great purpose, they've already got life going on. Life already feels a certain way to them. They're already interpreting life. They're already trying to explain why things are the way they are. They've already got some ambitions prescribed. Goals and desires and dreams are inside of these people. And here comes Jesus, and they're crying out for his help. Strong, strong scene. A a scene so real and so strong for them that within one week, they're going to abandon and reject Jesus. 
But they said that they wanted to be saved. They said that they needed something. Listen, do you realize this about your own life? Your current circumstances, your current situation can be so loud, so powerfully defining who you are, that if Jesus Christ doesn't show up in your life and speak your language about your situation, you could be done with him in a pretty short time. He came to do one thing, but you are only open for him to do something else. This is what many people's Christianity looks like. This is what it looked like for them. And, you know, the daughter of Zion in this moment, children of Israel, they're, they're in a tough place. It's, it's not a fun day to be a Jew in Jerusalem in 33 AD. All right, look at this thought from William Lane. Lane Craig, he says, in order to appreciate what happens next, you need to understand something of the Jewish feeling toward Rome. In 63 BC, right, so you're 100 years almost uh, before, well, 70 years before. In 63 BC, Roman legions under Pompey had put an end to an independent Jewish state, conquering Jerusalem and deposing the king. Israel labored under the oppressive military dictatorship of a pagan nation. The Jews chafed under the yoke of Roman rule. Within 35 years after Jesus' death, Jews would be in full-scale rebellion against Rome, finally resulting in the catastrophic destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. In the meantime, Israel was a cauldron of unrest. Jews yearned for a messianic deliverer, who would once again, once and for all, restore to Israel the throne of David and establish God's kingdom in the land. But now, right here in this story, with this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, everything changes. Right, to understand why these people are crying uncle, to understand why they're saying, Hosanna, help us. You, you got to put yourself in a little bit of the setting of being a Jew in an occupied territory. The Romans have come in and taken over, and they've established their government, their ways, their morals. There is an offensiveness to the lifestyle that's there. And this, this is not too foreign from some of what we feel like. And if you're a Christian living in the world, you are living in occupied territory. You're living behind enemy lines. And, and, it, and we would do well to, to kind of be reminded of that a little bit, right? These Jews are living under Roman ways of life, Roman attitudes toward things that they held precious. You know, we, we live in a country that's undergoing a kind of a sexual revolution. It's been doing that. You know, 60s were marked by that. And we're continuing down that road. Um, and now, listen, I know we, got, we kind of got this American thing going on like, Boy, these changes in America just make it so hard, so hard to be a Christian. Isn't it just so hard to be a Christian in America? Um, Well, don't ever read anything about the Roman Empire. If you think it's hard to be a Christian in America, just spare yourself from reading about the Roman Empire. This, This looks like a kindergarten nursery story compared to the Roman Empire. I mean, the morality in the Roman Empire, like we've got some confusion about marriage and marriage laws, et cetera. 
you know, it was just common in the Roman Empire. Sexuality was a, an interesting thing on display in the Roman Empire. Greek and Roman culture, which dominates the landscape for Gentiles and Jews who, who are coming out of a moral system of, of ideas from God and the Ten Commandments, are living amongst these people, and it's an offensive thing, right? The common ideas about marriage was, you know, adultery, if you were a Roman, you were only considered to be having adultery if you were having sex with the wrong woman. There were certain classes of people that, as a man, you were allowed to have sex with. So it had nothing to do with whether or not you were cheating on your wife. It just had to do with, as a man, whether you chose the right person to be with. Prostitution, common. Sex with slaves, common. Male and female. So you'd be living amongst the people where that's just, that's just common fare. You know? You know today, I mean, we, we've, got, we've got concerns all over the place, and rightly so, because we've got moral disagreements with our culture. But you can imagine the, the common life that's in this setting. Right? I know some of us get all jazzed up about political structures and ideologies and who's in office and what government uh, principles are being put forward and tax structures and everything. One writer set talks about the, the Roman tax system. This, this might make you feel like, hey, we don't have it too bad. The Romans exacted a water tax, a city tax, a tax on necessities like meat and salt, a road tax, and a house tax. And then there was a frontier tax which basically just popped up whenever you traveled around. Uh, they were just stopping places where they would just tax you. Here's the result. The result was that sometimes the price of a good exceeded 100 times its original cost. Right? And if you go and look at some of the taxes on, like, gasoline, you'll find out, wow, gasoline's really not all that expensive. Why do you pay $3 and something cents a gallon? Well, it's not because gasoline costs $3 and something cents a gallon. There's all kinds of taxes on top of the gasoline product. And you and I feel like, oh, empty the tea into the sea. Something's got to be done around here. Uh, listen, to be a Christian in this setting, if you were under Roman rule, right, all these phraseologies, you know, if somebody, somebody takes your cloak from, you know, your, your garment from you, give them your, give them your cloak as well. Where does where's that come from? Well, it comes from the way in which the Romans treated you. The Romans just take your stuff. They just... You're an occupied person in our territory. Here, carry my backpack. Well, if they ask you to take it, you know, this far, go double. Blow their minds. Serve them. Why why is Jesus telling them all these things? Because of the oppressive manner in which people live their lives under Roman dominance. So this this is how life was for them. And here comes Jesus riding into Jerusalem. What does it mean for us? How's it going to affect our lives? What will he do to help us and save us? Right? Here's, here's the great tendency. It's a tendency for these folks, and it's a tendency for ours, to have our current condition of weighty difficulty and suffering to define life for us in such a way that if a Savior is coming, he is coming to save us from that. That's why he's here. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem to rescue us from Rome. That's why he's here. And that's why they're going to kill him in less than a week. Because they don't understand why he's here. 
Now, the entrance, I think I put this in your outline, the entrance of the king that is cause for great rejoicing may not, however, follow a script that's easily appreciated. Right? Their experience is Roman dominance. They want a king to come. I'm not sure they want him riding in on a donkey, to be honest with you. They want a king to come riding in, maybe in a chariot, wearing armor, white horses, and an army behind him who will overthrow this government. And listen, this is such a common thought. You do remember James and John's mother, right? Right before we get to chapter 21, if you just back up a few verses, James and John's mother have a request back in chapter 20, right before the grand entrance of the king on the donkey into Jerusalem, James and John's mother's asking, Jesus, could you work this out for me? Could you grant that my sons would sit one on your right and one on your left when you come into your kingdom? What do you, what do you think this woman's thinking of? Do you think she's, she's you know, lifted her gaze up to the pearly gates and, and, and has visions of clouds of heaven? And she sees Jesus enthroned for all time and his throne in heaven. And, and there's James and John, one on the right and one on the left. Do you think that's what she's thinking? No. She's thinking when you, when you overthrow the Romans and you restore us to being a nation out from underneath all this oppression and taxation and stealing and mistreatment, when you come and do that, Jesus, could you, could you make my sons somebody in your political structure? Could they be somebody? Could they be impressive? People didn't get it. Maybe that we have a difficult time discerning the presence of the king among us because we have poorly defined the real need and conditions of our lives. So we look for a God who is defined by our own appetites and self-awareness. Jesus is mighty. Jesus is powerful. Jesus does amazing things. Jesus is the king, and he's come riding into your Palm Sunday Jerusalem. What, what are you hoping he's coming to do? Right? I mean, it's Palm Sunday. It's the spring. Time of year when high school students are taking their ACT tests. Right? Any ACT guys here this morning? Jesus is coming riding into your Jerusalem. What, what do you hope this mighty king will do? Well, give me a better test score. <laughs> right? Maybe you're not taking ACT tests, but you're filing your taxes this week. What are you hoping Jesus will do? <laughs> Work a miracle through my accountant. That's what I'm hoping for. Because, I mean, let's face it. If that turns sour, if that goes bad and it doesn't work out the way you wanted it to, or your ACT score doesn't allow you to qualify for tops, and you don't, you don't get... If those things don't go a certain way in your life, listen, don't, don't hold this mob crowd uniquely. There are lots of people who are going to turn their affections on Jesus when he doesn't show up and do what they thought he should do. He wrote, he wrote into the gates of my city, my city, you know what's going on in my life? He needs to come show up and do what I need him to do. He's here to do what needs to be done. Not necessarily what you think needs to be done. And he's going to disappoint a lot of folks here in this setting. This king in less than a week who doesn't do what they thought he should do is going to be rejected, tried unjustly, numbered among criminals, 
and crucified in less than a week. And, and no one gets that on Palm Sunday. No one gets that. His disciples don't get it. I mean, we fast forward one week. All the events have transpired. The crucifixion has occurred. And he actually, it's, it's one week from today. It is Easter morning. Right? If you want to go read Easter morning, this is, this is not a great resume for the disciples. Luke chapter 24 is, is one bad depiction of the disciples after another. Jesus promised that he was, he was going to come back on the third day. So what did the disciples do on the third day? Well, no one shows up at the tomb except for some women, and they show up with ointment for a dead man. They don't show up with a guitar. You know, let's go worship. Let's go celebrate. Let's have the first resurrection morning service because we know Jesus has come back from the dead. No, no, they show up with embalming aids for a dead man. Later that day, well, you know, right after that, they actually get to discover, hey, Jesus, he's not dead. He's alive. They come back, tell the disciples. Disciples listen to him. You, you women have gone nuts. It sounds like an idle tale. That's what Peter, or one of the apostles, said. Sounded like an idle tale, and they didn't believe. Two of the men run off to go see what happens. Later on in the day, the road to Emmaus, you got this scene It looks like a bunch of a, a disciples walking along, kicking rocks, heads down on their way to Emmaus. Jesus shows up. Hey, what's up, guys? He doesn't reveal who he is. And they begin to explain. You didn't hear what happened in Jerusalem? All this hubbub, all that's been going on. We had hoped. We had hoped that he had come to redeem Israel. What were they hoping for? We had hoped that a king would ride into Jerusalem and would overthrow the Romans and would set up a kingdom that had less taxes. Oh, if somebody just get in the White House, I could do less taxes. God, where are you? Are you still God? I don't even know if God's God. I mean, look at the taxes. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? I mean, it's a shame, but to be honest, there's some Christians here trying to figure out whether God's God because there's this new health care system. Can God still be God? No, I'm trying to trust him, Keith. I am. I don't know. Maybe you need to spend a little bit of time in in Jerusalem in 33 AD. The king rides in on a donkey and he doesn't fix any of that stuff. But he does do exactly what he said he would do. On Palm Sunday, Jesus shows us the gates of their lives, right? Here they are coming in at the gate. Everybody's got it sounding good at the gate. He shows up to accomplish the most important thing that they need, only it's not what they want. It's Palm Sunday, 2014. Jesus Christ is riding into your life. He has been, he still is. Are you interested in what he's bringing? Or is he showing up to do stuff that you kind of don't really want? I want some stuff. Don't get me wrong. I've got big plans and big desires and big dreams. And I want Jesus to rescue me from something that I don't like about my life. But I don't know if I want what he wants. 
right? Palm Sunday, 2014. So here's my second question. Are you disappointed with a king on a donkey? Coming humble and lowly, showing up. And at least he still drew a crowd, but I think they were hoping for a conquering general to show up and do something different. Are you disappointed with what Jesus brings to your life as a Christian? Are you still rejoicing when you discover what he has come to accomplish in your life? A lot of noise at the gate. But when Jesus gets inside the city, it's it's an ugly scene, right? Get past that gate, Jesus, and they're going to treat you different. The feeling is going to be different. And a matter of fact, they're going to have the court inside those gates and they're going to falsely accuse you and reject you because you didn't come to do what they wanted you to do. The big crowd outside who's using the word Hosanna is going to use a little different set of phraseology at the end of the week on you. And you came in, I think if I got my geography right, you're coming in on the east side of Jerusalem and you're going to die on a hill on the west side of Jerusalem, buddy. That's what your week is going to look like. Because they didn't want what Jesus was coming to bring them. Well, what was he coming to bring them? Zechariah 9, verse 9. I think it's in your outline there. This is, this is what's being quoted on Palm Sunday in Matthew 21. Rejoice greatly. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. If there ever were shouting words, amen, Peter? If there ever were shouting words in the Bible, these are shouting words. This is the appropriate response to what Jesus rode into Jerusalem to do. Rejoice greatly. Now listen, I know the backdrop of life is the Romans are miserable. The taxation's horrible. You're selling off stuff to avoid the oppressiveness of what they're bringing to your life. The morality around you is horrible. And even in the presence of all that, rejoice greatly. Shout aloud, O daughter of of Jerusalem. Your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Righteous and having salvation is he. Now listen, listen, there's some really cool, great news in this about the sovereign purposes of God. All these guys shouting Hosanna, they, they want Jesus to do something different than what he's about to do. Even his disciples seemingly didn't quite get what he was about to do. Aren't you glad that God is still able to be God and pull off what he's doing when he's surrounded by knuckleheads? Aren't you glad about that? I mean, there's a life lesson here, right? Because I, mean, I don't always feel that way. Sometimes I'm panicking and freaking out because I'm convinced that for God's purpose to come to pass, everybody's got to do it right around me, you know? The spouse has got to do it right. The kids have got to do it right. The coworkers have got to do it right. The church has got to do it. Everybody's got to do it right, man, for God's purposes to come to pass. And, you know, if you mess it up or they mess it up, I, I, I don't know how anything good could come into my life. Well, this is a great life lesson, isn't it? No one gets it. No one gets it on Palm Sunday, what Jesus is about to accomplish. And it does not change at all that he still accomplishes it. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that God is God. You know, you know I'm just a man. Uh, 
can do a little bit of math, but beyond that, I'm pretty simple. God gets it, and I'm grateful that he doesn't depend upon me getting it. But here's the good news. Rejoice greatly, shout aloud, because your king is coming, bringing salvation. Your king is riding into your Jerusalem, bringing salvation. That's what he's got with him. Oh. Oh. Salvation. Is that all? I don't know. I was hoping for something a little better than that. I'm something a little 2014-ish. Jesus is coming into my life to bring salvation. I don't know. I guess that's really good for later on, isn't it? But what about now, you know? How about a little, I don't know, a little money? Is bringing any money? I could use some money right now. I could use it to be a little prettier. I don't know. I could use a little status. I could, I could use some kind of improvement. I could use a little healing. I'm getting old and body doesn't work the same way as it used to. Hey, Jesus, show up in one of those categories. Ride through the gates on the donkey for one of those things, will you? Isn't it amazing that, that we've become a people who are, you know, a little, I mean, we're not, we don't hate salvation, but we're a little disappointed. I know, it's terrible, isn't it? We should all feel that way. That's the problem in this text right here. <laughs> it's a very discerning child right there. I think it's a grief to God as well. That's close to the impression of my experience I don't know. I think I was probably about nine years old when I received historically, and I think I may have shared this with you guys at some point. It was a scarring experience. Historically received what was the worst Christmas present ever, ever in life. Nine years old. I walked down, come down Christmas morning to open the gifts. Open up my present. You, know, you, got, you got your minor presents, you got your major presents, right? Well, this is, this is a major present. I open it up. It's a croquet set. (laughs) I'm not sure who was scarred more in that moment when I burst into tears. My parents were thinking, why did we think he would like this? Or or me, just, this is what you got me? I mean, this is some major event. This is Christmas morning. Do you know how much is riding on this gift? Well, what makes it worse is, and you guys will remember this if you're anywhere close to my age, you know, there used to be catalogs. Y'all remember catalogs? Catalogs came to your house. Well, we always got the Sears catalog, but around October, the Sears Christmas catalog showed up. Y'all remember this one? That was a bad dude, wasn't it? Because if you're a kid, If you're a kid, the normal Sears catalog looks like uh, the phone book. You know, it's like, who the heck cares? Lawn equipment, you know, clothing, Lord, uh, home improvement stuff. You You just don't ever bother with it. But when the Christmas catalog comes... Oh my gosh. I mean, it's got kids on the front. It's got a scene from Christmas. They're opening gifts. And it's like, I don't know, it felt like 90% toys. Right? I mean, it had some other items in it, but it's, it's all about everything for a nine-year-old. <laughs> so I would spend from October through Christmas studying the Sears catalog. And I had earmarked things. You know, I had, you know, pages were folded over to make sure my parents understood. It was like a trail 
of clues what might Keith be interested in this Christmas. So I, you know, I, I've done my homework. I've been properly informed about the latest stuff in the Sears catalog. I have earmarked things. A croquet set. <laughs> it was scarring. It was horrible. But it's kind of like Jesus riding into Jerusalem. They've been studying some catalog. There's some catalog about how to make my life worth living, Jesus. Hosanna! Save us! Jesus! Do you see page 940? Got it earmarked! Hosanna! Help me! Right? I mean, this is us. We shop in our catalog and we define what life needs to be and all of our hopes get up and we're, we're nine years old and the gift shows up and it's your grandmother saying, I made a big donation to your college trust fund. Oh, Lord. What? I'm nine. I don't even know what college is. Uh, I mean, that's worse than like, a, that's worse than, than clothing when your grandparents, you know. But I mean, just honestly, 20-year-old, 30-year-old, 40-year-old here today, 50-year-old, how many of you guys are still riding your skateboard? I mean, really? <laughs> Shooting your BB gun. Really? At nine, you got that? But I, I bet you're using your college degree now, aren't you? Right? So your grandmother knew something. <laughs> aren't you glad? Listen, Jesus comes showing up into our lives in categories that we need him to show up in. Not necessarily in catalog categories. That we've been shopping for him to show up in a particular way at a particular time and do a particular thing for us. Listen, this crowd, they, they gather at the gate. They are full of noise and celebration. They're honoring him like he's a king. But the gate of Jerusalem is going to give way to the back streets of Jerusalem. Which is kind of true for us too. There's, there's a lot of noise on the outside of us. And when you get past the outside of us into the heart issues, what, what is it that we really want? I mean, we can be here this morning. We can be singing. We can be participating. We're opening our Bibles. But when we get past the, the gate of, of me into the back streets of who I am, what do I really want? Want. What do I want Jesus to show up and be? And, and am I ready for him to be the kind of king that he is? Because when you got past the gate, you found out this city's not ready for this king. Not only they're not ready, they're not even interested in this king. And, you know, you read Holy Week. Holy Week is just one problem after another. This is not like uh, everything's in place. The reception's all good. We got the flowers ordered, the dress. We're good. We're just ready for the big event. This is a horrible week filled with horrible exchanges between the king on the donkey and a bunch of people who didn't want what he had. Right? Just, you just turn the pages here in Matthew 21. And you don't get done with this scene here to where Jesus is going into the temple and he's turning tables over and he's cleansing the temple because the king who came with righteousness and salvation came with righteousness too into a temple that knows nothing of righteousness. This is not a people crying out and saying, Jesus, restore our hearts to who you are. Jesus, 
We have drifted so far in the category of righteousness that we don't even know if we want what righteousness is. And they're money changers and they've become money grubbers, ripping people off who've come to worship God. And it's being accepted and tolerated. That's what Jesus encounters right away. You keep reading in chapter 21, you have the the parable of the tenant farmer. The owner owns the land and the the farmers come and they do their farming. They make a profit. They're they're making their craft and making a living here. And then the, the owner sends messengers to collect rent. They don't receive those messengers. They don't honor those messengers. They kill them. The owner decides... You didn't respect my messengers. I will, I will send my son to them. They kill him too. Right? You don't even get out of chapter 21. The parable of the wedding feast in chapter 22. Right? The king is having an enormously important event. Everyone, everyone should be available and interested in the king and the, the wedding feast of his son. And he sends out an invitation. And no one comes. They're too busy. If Jesus is using this illustration, here comes the king riding in on a donkey. Those people weren't interested in what that king was bringing them. They didn't have any value for that. They had other stuff going on in their life. They had other more important things to tend to than to show up at the wedding feast of the king and his son. Life was busy, wasn't it? I mean, got a lot going on. You know, it's kind of hard to value the things that God's into valuing when there's just so much. I mean, I got to work two jobs. This Roman tax thing is killing me. So they don't show up. Jesus pronounces seven woes on religious leaders who are in the city of Jerusalem, falsely leading and misleading people. Jesus stands over Jerusalem at one point and just laments the condition of this city. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, stoning the prophets, killing the messengers and killing and killing the son who's coming to you as well. How long I've wanted to gather you to myself, but you would not. You would not come to me. You would not gather to me. You would not hearken to me. Your heart was not toward me. This is the condition into which they come. But but look at the crowd. Look at the crowd. Jesus, when he goes into the back streets, he says, this is what's inside of you. It doesn't look like that way here, though, does it? It's a crowd for two miles out from Jerusalem. They're shouting and they're throwing stuff in the ground and they're welcoming the king. Hosanna! They seem very excited. What are they so excited about? Hosanna! Finally, the king has come to usher in my kingdom. I'm so excited for him to be here. Right? Did I write this in your outline? It is a sad commentary. When we welcome some version of Jesus the Messiah, not to bring his kingdom, but rather for him to usher in ours. That's what's happening on Palm Sunday. They are celebrating a king to come bring their kingdom to them. And the celebration is not going to last long. As soon as they figure out, oh, you're not here to bring my kingdom. You're here to bring yours. 
Mm. Parade over. Party over. William Lane Craig says, Jesus doesn't always meet our expectations. The Jews were expecting a king who would be a great military leader like David, who would throw off the yoke of Rome and establish God's kingdom by force. But Jesus was radically different than their expectations. The kingdom of God, which he preached and inaugurated, was not an earthly political kingdom, but the rule of God in the hearts of people who know and serve him. But this was not the kingdom which the people expected or wanted. And so they rejected Jesus as their Lord. Every one of these categories are people who have lived with their face buried in a catalog somewhere. They had figured out, if God's going to move on my behalf, this is the category that it's going to matter for him. Jesus come riding through that gate right there to bring me that thing right there. And that's what they wanted from him. Whether you're the mother of James and John, you've got your hopes and aspirations. Jesus has finally come and boy, it's going to be good for my boys. It's going to be good for my boys. This is a typical parent temptation, isn't it? Defining who Jesus is and what he came to do around how's it working out for my kids. How's it going for them? Are they in the place that I think Jesus should have them in? They're responding to things the way in which I think Jesus should accomplish that in their life. See, how many of us set up these kinds of, of desires and expectations around Jesus, and then when things don't go the way we thought they would go, we maybe don't stand with the crowd and yell, crucify him, but neither do we stand with Jesus and celebrate and greatly rejoice what he came to do either. Because we've, we've set up some other kingdoms here. It's religious leaders behind the walls of that city. It was expedient, they said. It was expedient for one man to die than for us to lose this whole system. They didn't want the God of this system. They wanted the system. They just wanted a means of making a living and getting money and having power and having influence. Here Jesus has come to bring salvation, but people would rather have money. I'd rather have status. I'm the high priest, for goodness sake. What, do you want me to move aside? That's not what I'm after. So they don't don't ever clue into who this Jesus is. It's expedient for us to kill him. Now you didn't realize you're fulfilling prophecy in what you're doing. That's the great thing. You can have the most corrupt and evil motive, and God is still on his throne saying, yep, it's exactly what you're going to do. You're going to despise my son, and you're going to hate him. Because if you actually fell in love with him, you wouldn't murder him, and that would be a whole different problem. And it's sometimes that you and I have no clue as to how corruption, sin, human brokenness can ever play into God's good plan. Don't you and I question that most of the time? Something goes wrong. We call time out, question God. God, how, how can your purpose get fulfilled that this is wrong? These, we're doing it wrong. How many wrongs do you want to read about in this week? This is one wrong after another after another. But at the end of the week, the most glorious purpose ever, ever is going to get fulfilled. Exactly as God had planned it. You love having a God like that. Got the wedding invitees here. 
they're, they're not longing for Jesus to come be king over their lives. They don't even have time for him. They're busy. Not showing up for this. Now, maybe they showed up for the parade. I don't think the same crowd standing around at the crucifixion. And the only recorded people at the resurrection are some naive women who've come to deal with a dead body. Wow, this is not what we thought this was going to be. And so they turn. Look at at this thought here in your outline. What a disappointment for those who had hailed his entry. What kind of Messiah was this? What sort of deliverer is this? In the ensuing days, Jesus did cleanse the temple, but he didn't raise a finger against the Romans. In fact, he didn't even raise his voice against them. Instead, he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Who needs a king like this? Or if you watch too much Fox News, you might be wondering, who needs a king like this? He can't even fix our political problems. Hmm. I wonder if the king who came in bringing salvation wasn't quite as interested in politics as you are. Oh, he's got to be. He's Republican, for goodness sake. Craig goes on and says, By Friday... Enough of the multitude were sufficiently disenchanted with Jesus that the temple priesthood, who had engineered his arrest and delivered him to the Romans on the treasonous charge of claiming to be the king of the Jews, were able to turn them against him. And now they chanted, not cries of Hosanna, but crucify him. Crucify him. You know, when you've got to put the, the scriptures into, into a movie setting, Right, there's, there's movies out now, and I haven't seen this one, The Son of God, or the latest one about Jesus. But it's, it's a hard thing to portray this stuff accurately. Right, so I've got scarred images in my head of this crowd standing before. You know, here's your, here's your offering, big crowd. You got Barabbas, and you got Jesus, and you look out into the crowd, and the film presents it this way bunch of people who really want Jesus. They really want Jesus, but they're intimidated by these bad priest people in the audience who make them cry out for Barabbas and the zealots and all the people just strong arm these folks. And all of a sudden they're, you know, crucify him. We don't really want to say that. We're really for Jesus. Crucify him. Oh, we're so afraid. I'm not sure that's the crowd. I'm not sure the crowd who welcomed him at the gate doesn't discover That what you're bringing me doesn't have any value to me. I don't get it. What has value to me is what I found in my catalog. And you don't seem to have that with you. We had hoped. We thought. I've been staring at this catalog for months. And here you come riding in here. I thought you'd bring me this. My life is screaming at me in this category. I thought you'd bring me this. Listen, you and I are not in that crowd, but we're still in the crowd. And our life is loud, and our life is hard, and it's disappointing. And, and, and there's, there's elements where we're crying out, Uncle, I, I don't know that I can do this anymore. God, you've got to help me. Hosanna, you've got to help me. Why are you saying that? What's filling out your experience in that moment? Now, it, I'm not saying that's wrong. Life squeezes us and we do cry 
God, rescue me from this situation. God, help me. And God wants us to cry out that way. But you need to be careful that you don't design a Messiah based on your current circumstances. Because when those current circumstances go away and suddenly they become better, you will forget about that Messiah in a heartbeat. You know how many people we will meet with in a crisis that they're all about Jesus, they're all about him. Yeah, well, they're in need, man. Uncle, uncle, uncle. And then, strangely, life works itself out. Job changes, money flow changes, circumstances get better. Where's Jesus now? Oh, he's, a, you know, I, I still keep him in the closet. I mean, he's, he's here somewhere. You know, I read my Bible a little bit. Uh, what were you looking for? You looking for the Messiah? Are you looking for a little relief agency to show up in your life? This is the Messiah. This is rejoice and shout aloud, people of God. Because your king is coming and he's bringing salvation with him. The salvation, does that word mean something to you? Salvation from what? I'm going to say two things. And it may... It may barely have anything to do with the thing we most like Jesus to come rescue us from. Two things. His salvation is a salvation from sin. Sin is, is on the loose in our lives. Sin is so knit together with me that I can't tell when it's me and when it's sin. So, in an interesting way, Jesus has come to save me from me. That's the best news I could ever have because, see, I'm convinced that my problem is the Romans. I'm convinced. It's the Romans. And some of you are Romans. Sorry. So my problems are about what somebody else is or isn't in my life. Jesus. And so I just, I learned to cry out to Jesus at the gate of my life as he comes on his donkey into my situation. And it's like, Jesus, can I, I'm so glad you're here. Can I just point the Romans out to you real quick? Him, her, and, and those two. Come on, just go to work on them. Whatever you got to do, Jesus. I mean, I, I like them sometimes, but if you got to kill them, you got to kill them. I mean, it's, it's up to you. You're the king. I've been praying, and I just believe big, and I just know that you're going to be all over these Romans. How many of us are glad that Jesus came riding through the gate to rescue me from me? <laughs> I'm worse than the Romans to me. I am so much worse than the Romans to me because sin dwells in me and makes me do some of the dumbest things, the most self-destructive things, the most looks like it makes sense and a good idea things that just blow up in your face things. And he comes riding in to save me from me. Whether the taxes change tomorrow or not, what a deliverance to have a Savior ride into my life and rescue me from me and my sin. That's the first thing. But it's not the most important thing. And this is the thing that too many people have no value for. Jesus rides into this crowd, into this city, to rescue these people from God. 
Their sin has broken the law of a perfect and righteous God. He is going to respond. He is not going to close his eyes because he is perfect in his justice. He is going to punish sin. If you're an accountant here, or if you know one, talk to him about this. There has never been a sin that will not be completely punished. Ever. There is no rug for something to get swept underneath it. There is no overlooking. Now, I think, you, you know, well, I've got this great view of God, that he's just an overlooking God. See, I, you know, God is, he, Keith, my God is, is part grandfather, part Santa Claus, part, I don't know what the third part is, but he's part something else. And so when sin comes to him, he just kind of finds this way to maneuver and ignore it, if he even ever sees it anyway. That's just kind of how he is. Listen, can I just tell you to read a little bit of the Bible? Just a little. That God isn't in the Bible. And I don't know why we would think that's so noble. Is that more noble to you than what God did in the Bible? Because it blows my mind what God did in the Bible. This, this, this man riding on the donkey is riding to a destiny because of God and the way God is. If God's a carpet sweeper, well, he can just stay in the Mount of Olives. He doesn't need to go through all this. Just stay up in the hillside with some friends, with Lazarus, who you rose from the dead. Yeah, go, go hang out with Lazarus. You and I can, you guys can talk resurrection together. Don't drive into the city falsely accused and rejected and have nails driven through your wrist? Why do all that? God's a rug sweeper. He'll just take everybody's sin and sweep it under the rug. Jesus, you don't need to do all this. Listen, the God who abundantly, mercifully overlooks everything is not more noble than the God who punishes his son so that he can overlook your sin. That's more noble. That's what he's done. Your king is coming. Rejoice greatly. He brings salvation with him. He has come to save you from yourself. And he has come to save you from the punishment of God. What you've been looking at in your catalog that's worth more than that. That makes you feel like that's an okay gift. There's nothing better than this. Hey, Eric, go ahead and come back up here. We just finished with this thought from Charles Spurgeon. This rejoicing greatly. This is what I would call an imported rejoicing. You you don't find reason for rejoicing in Jerusalem in 33 AD. Their life doesn't say, hey, there's a lot to be really excited about. There's a lot in our lives to be rejoicing about. This is an imported rejoicing. This is a rejoicing that comes from outside of their life conditions. It comes as a result of God and his nearness. And Charles Spurgeon says this. Whenever God would have his people especially glad, it is always in himself. If it be written, rejoice greatly, then the reason is, behold, thy king cometh to thee. 
Our chief source of rejoicing is the presence of King Jesus in the midst of us. Right? Can I read that again? Because I don't know if that's valuable enough to us. Our chief source of rejoicing is the presence of King Jesus in the midst of us. Whether it be his first or his second advent, his very shadow is delight. His footfall is music to our ear. That delight springs much from the fact that he is ours. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Behold, thy king cometh to thee. Whatever he may be to others, he is thy king. To whomsoever he may or may not come, he cometh to thee. Let's stand up together. your hearts just for God to use your name right now, the Holy Spirit to ride through the gates of your city, yours, the one where you live, the circumstances, the relationships, the settings, the goals, the dreams. Let him come ride into your town. here. Just open your heart. Just be sensitive. How is God wanting you to receive this this morning by faith? Maybe some of you are here this morning. What you need this morning is to have faith to believe that the king on this donkey is right now accomplishing his purpose in your life. You just need faith to believe that. You're so convinced this morning and recently of the power of the Romans and the power of those around you and the power of those who don't get it and people don't understand and people have done the wrong thing and you've been mistreated and you've been overlooked and one person after another just isn't getting it right. This morning, the Lord is wanting you to lift your gaze to see how he is. That he comes riding into your life. Can you just let him be who he is? The God who doesn't need everybody to get it right in order for him to be at work. The God who accomplishes his purpose when it looks like no one's cooperating. this morning just to say, God, I see that. I see that in this story today. I see this in the final week of your life upon this earth. God, I see you at work accomplishing your purpose with or without the blessing of others. It's still true. It's still true today. If there's some here this morning, I think God's word to you this morning is that you've let your life become ultimately defined by your Roman world. And you've defined God by that as well. Whether it's 
recent circumstances or lifelong struggle, prolonged conflicts that existed in your life, prolonged health issues, your town of Jerusalem, the thing that causes you to cry out to God, Hosanna, come and help me. They're real. They're real issues. God's not ignoring them. But they are not the ultimate issues of your life. You cannot let them define who God is. You cannot let the Savior, the eternal Savior of God sent to man be defined as though you were just a a Jew living in Jerusalem in 33 AD saying, Jesus, deliver me from this. God's got bigger things in your life. He has shown up for the biggest of reasons to save you from sin and judgment. You needed that more than you needed anything else. You needed that more than you need this season of your life to change or to turn into something else. You need that more than you need physical remedy to the ailments of your body. You you need salvation more than you needed that relationship to go right. More than you needed to still be married. Your salvation from your sin and the judgment of God is more valuable than your loneliness being fixed. Oh, I know that's hard. And I stand right with you shed human tears over the conditions that life can bring. If all you see is that, you can't can't rejoice this morning. You can't shout aloud. Because it looks like the Savior forgot to come for that. He didn't forget. But you need to see, He came for something bigger. Bigger than that. Some of us this morning have been a little angry at God. If you're here this morning and you're sensing, I've been in a season where I'm, I'm angry, angry at God. Your heart this morning has given away what it is that you've wanted. For God came into this world to give you God. And he was successful and he accomplished that. God is yours. But you might be rather angry with just having God if you really, really wanted something in the catalog instead. So can I, can I pull the rug out from underneath that sense of self-justified anger? I'm going to do that carefully, but I know that's where we go. We feel like God has disappointed us. I have the right to be angry with him. Why did God disappoint you? Because I had my heart set on something in life's catalog and he didn't give it to me. I know that makes sense, but it's upside down. Can you just for a moment take God's perspective and realize it doesn't make sense to him? God sent his son to break down the barrier between you and him. So that you could have him. God thought 
that if there was anything of an inheritance that was worth having, he thought it was him. He brought many blessings to Abraham, a land and a people. But he told Abraham, Abraham, behold, I, I am your great reward. stop feeling justified because you're angry at God. God's got a better right to be angry at you because he's given you himself and it wasn't good enough. And just humble yourself before God this morning. As angry maybe as you've been to be able to say, Lord, I see it. I see it. I have wanted a catalog item more than I have wanted you. Lord, would you forgive me? You have written into my life to bring the greatest gift that I could ever receive. Forgiveness of my sins and restoration to you. Would you help us to be a people who don't shop in our catalogs that way? Would you rescue us from the catalogs of this world? that have made you a means to something rather than the ultimate something to us. Lord, we're grateful this morning. Grateful, grateful that you rode into our lives. Even though we would reject, ignore, be hostile to, have other plans and goals. Even though our voices would be lifted up in moments, rejecting you, crying, crucify him, crucify him. You set your face as a flint to go to Jerusalem and to find your way to a cross and to take our place on it and to save us from our sin and from God's judgment. Lord, thank you for Palm Sunday. Thank you for riding into our lives. Lord, we rejoice today. Lord, we shout aloud today because you have done for us what ultimately needed to be done. Lord, not what I wanted you to do, but what I needed you to do, you came and you did. And Lord, thank you. We say thank you today for that. Jesus, only Jesus, give us Jesus, we cry. Only Jesus, only Jesus, the pearl of greatest price. Father, Jesus, enlarge our hearts, enlarge our hearts, to love your Son, to love your Son, will grant to us the grace to 
walk with Him always, to make Him our great delight, bringing worship with our lives. Only Jesus, only Jesus, give us Jesus, we cry. Only Jesus, only Jesus, the pearl of greatest pride. Spirit of grace. Spirit of grace, you shed your light upon our darkened eyes, unveiling Jesus, the one and only Savior, come change our hearts, conform our ways to yours, Lord, conform our ways to honor Jesus' name, His glory our refrain. Let His love compel our own as we worship at His throne. Only Jesus, only Jesus, Jesus, we cry. Only Jesus, only Jesus, the pearl of greatest price. Jesus,
Lord, we worship you as Savior. Lord, the one who knows our greatest need was not for the things that we think we need, Lord, but it was for the thing that we had as a great need, Lord, to be saved, to be reconciled to God, to be redeemed, to be brought back to life, to be washed clean of our sins. Lord, and you, our great Savior, came and did that for us. You died in our place. Lord, help us this week to live lives that worship you for that. Lord, we don't look for our own, our own saviors, our own ways of wanting to be saved. Lord, we look to you and trust you, God, and believe in you as our Savior. God, we love you. You are great to us, God. It's, it's wonderful to be your children. We love you. In your Son, Jesus' name we pray.